Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hey, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with a very special guest, Billy Keels. Billy, how are you today? Brian. Well, you know what? I'm feeling uh, feeling pretty good about today's conversation. I'm super excited to see you again, my friend, and hear you again, and uh, looking forward to another conversation with you. So, yeah. So, for people who aren't familiar, Billy, I was on his show during COVID. I can't remember when, and probably the most energetic, positive person that I've interacted with. And frankly, I don't I don't typically have folks within your genre on the show. Because I feel like in our world, they can be cannibalistic, like people just go on to each other's shows and they don't create a lot of value for the listener. But there's something different about you. And in preparation for this, we have a, a, the same third-party marketing consultant, Ashley Kent, who's terrific. She's been on the show. And I, I pinged her this morning, Master, and Bill doesn't know this, what is your favorite part about working with Billy? I'm recording him today, so I'm curious. And this is Ashley's response. Awesome exclamation point. He is so charismatic and truly is passionate about helping people. Everything he does is about trying to reach as many people as he can to induce the idea of investing so they can ultimately create the life they want. Zero vanity metrics for him. It truly is all about simply helping people. Wow. How does that make you feel? I am actually, that's pretty uh, awesome. And Brian, I, I want to acknowledge you for sharing that with me. That means a lot um, because it is a... You know, it's it is it's it's what I'm what I'm doing. Like it's just just part of the part of the journey that I'm on, part of the life that I've lived, and being able to recognize it. It's about being able to give back as much as it is about being able to move forward. That makes huge impact. And um, I'm at a point in my life now where I recognize that it's not just 
it's not how much can you take and learn. It's about how much can you also give and grow. And so hearing that uh, from from Ashley and having you share that with me means a lot. So um, I really do uh, appreciate that a lot. You always had that mindset, that generosity, that abundance mindset. No, mm -mm. no, I didn't actually. Um, growing up, actually, before I even go into that, because you just reminded me about something, um, two things. One, you were very kind. Yes, you were guest number 75 on my podcast, the Going Long podcast, and that was really, really awesome of you. And number two, I am very impressed with what you continue to do uh, with the Capital Club and the way that your company continues to impact people. And for those of you who are watching or listening, if you haven't literally taken a couple seconds just to leave an honest written review as well as a rating, I know that that would be very helpful to Brian and his team to be able to go out and get even more of the guests that are going to give you what you need. So I know they put a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of heart into this uh, show. And so it's just a couple seconds and it really will go a long way for you as a listener and a viewer. So with that as a kind of a just kind of teeing things up. I wasn't always like that, actually, Brian, because I grew up in a household where I watched my parents work two jobs a lot of times. And so I grew up and I didn't realize it at the time, but I grew up in a very scarcity mentality, which was because you don't have like because I didn't have and I knew that I was watching my parents work two jobs constantly. It was about the little that you have, you have to get a, get a hold of it and hold on to it as much as you can, right? You didn't really worry about sharing or giving or growing. And, and I use that from a financial perspective because I just watched them struggle financially. Now, on the other hand, what they did give us was a lot of love, a lot of attention when they could. But in terms of the mentality, the, the generosity, the abundant mindset, it's something that I'm still growing into today. I'm just much more aware of it. And because I'm aware of it and I'm actually doing it, I see the results that happen for others. And, and then also, too, what happens for myself, for my family. So it, it's something that I'm growing into and it's something that I'm becoming much more comfortable with. And we, you, you can tell Billy and, Billy and I know each other because I didn't even do the uh, the bio intro. So let's do that. <laughs> it's all context. good. <laughs> we should jump right in there and got very deep very quickly, which I think is a good thing. I like good that, thing. Yeah. So Billy is the CEO and founder of First Generation Capital Partners. I'm just a regular guy, middle-class family from Columbus, Ohio, which he just alluded to. He grew up nothing, knowing nothing about investing. When he started to become successful in his career, which we'll also get into, he had no idea how to invest his high salary. From that point on, he gave himself the challenge of learning everything he could about all things money and investing and is on a mission to guide others to their own freedom. And you did the corporate gig, right? I mean, this is part of your identity is you did this corporate grind for, I think, 26 years, right? That's it, man. 26 years I did. And, you know, I, I was a very, very, I mean, I, even on my LinkedIn, right? I had this moniker, which was the happy corporate employee. And people would be like, what in the world is that on your LinkedIn, dude? <laughs> because I really genuinely enjoyed the corporate life. It, corporate life was really good to me. And I was very good to corporate life. I had a chance to work and travel and see the world in a way that I would have never being from Columbus, Ohio. I mean, by the time I was 26 years old, I'd worked and traveled throughout 58 countries. And that was, you know, working with CEOs from Fortune 500 companies in very close proximity, working really, really long hours, giving a lot, growing a lot, you know, within that co corporate construct. It's the thing that led me to wanting to take a one year sabbatical. So I was working and traveling out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri, but I was, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, five years, 58 countries. I decided I wanted to take a one-year sabbatical, and I did that. I was accepted at a university in Paris, France, called the Sorbonne, 
uh, I w- went there to learn about French language and culture. I wanted to learn more about salsa dancing, believe it or not. And, or I wanted to learn how to salsa dance, actually, not more about it. I wanted to learn how to salsa dance. And then lastly, I wanted to learn more about wine. And so I did that. But at the end of the year, I didn't actually want to go back to the U.S. And so it's been a that was actually interesting because right around now is about 21 years that I've actually been living in Europe. So did not plan on being here. But when I did the, at the end of that one year sabbatical, Brian, I decided that because I was working with a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs and they were always like, hey, listen, if you ever want a job, just give me a call. Well, I took a couple of them up on it. I ended up getting into the IT space. I started out in hardware and I got a chance to stay in Europe, stayed in France. I left Paris. I went to a town called Montpellier in the south and got quickly back into leadership roles. They sent me to Italy. I was living there for a while to start up a sales team. Eventually, eventually went back. I met a woman from Spain. She moved back to Barcelona. I left the hardware side of IT, went into software, moving from France to Spain. And I wrapped up the last 16 years. I was working for the the world's largest enterprise software company. And I worked in sales and sales leadership. During the time that I was there, probably the largest business that I was responsible for running was about a $100 million business across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And at the end of a successful year, it had nothing to do actually with with corporate life because I enjoyed it. It had something to do more with uh, with my dad not not being well and my dad getting ill that I, it was time for me to go from corporate life. And so after 26 years, a lot of really, really great memories, wonderful experiences, lots of growth. I decided that it was time to kind of put the, put the corporate life behind me and take those experiences and, and move forward. And so, yeah, after 26 years, it's now time to, uh, to do something else, make an impact in another way. And, and part of that is through the, through the company that you, you talked about before, about earlier, but also it has a lot to do with playing video games with my kids. <laughs> and just getting quality time with them, spending more quality time with my wife and even being able to fly back to the U.S. When, whenever I can just to maybe catch a football game with my dad and brother and sister and my mom. What was that decision-making process like in terms of, I want to get to the company and, and leave in corporate game, but more interestingly for me to begin with is the decision to live abroad, that expat life. What did that decision train look like? Yeah. So that was one that I'd never even saw coming, but it started in college actually. And I didn't realize it. I had this knack for Spanish and uh, this is a deep question, man. So it's a great question. So when I had this college experience, I had a first degree. I got rejected for my dream job twice. I was supposed to go work for Procter & Gamble, but they didn't like me the first time. And then I went, decided I wanted to get a degree in uh, Spanish and I wanted to add a second degree. And so I thought that that would help me actually get back and get my dream job. Unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately for me, I had a chance to live overseas for the very first time ever. And that was back in 1995. Unfortunately for me professionally, that wasn't enough to get my dream job. And so when I'd had that overseas experience, I, w- I went through a program through the University of Virginia, living in Valencia, Spain. Brian, that was the very first time that I'd ever been so exposed to so many different things, right? I was from Columbus, Ohio. I thought getting to California was going to be a huge deal. Living in Europe with a with a Spanish family did something for me that just, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Challenged the way that I was thinking, thought the world was viewed, what was right, what was wrong. And it was after getting, so having that experience, getting rejected from my dream job, not once, but twice. And then having the really good fortune of having an amazing friend of mine, Andy, shouts out to him, who told me about this job with people who were traveling all over the world. And that's when there were 6,000 resumes. I was one of 26 people that ended up getting this job for this company when I was working and traveling around the world. And so one of the things that happened in 1995 is that I told myself I wanted to go over and I wanted to learn Spanish and I wanted to learn it fluently, but I was afraid Brian, I was literally afraid because 
I didn't want to look foolish. I didn't want to sound foolish by trying to speak the language because I was there for such a short period of time. And because I don't come from a family that, you know, we had lots of money, I got some scholarships and things like that. And I was paying for this experience overseas, but I failed myself because I didn't want to allow myself to be uncomfortable looking, sounding like someone who was not a native to, to learn the language. And because I went back and was so kind of personally disappointed with myself in 1995, because I didn't learn Spanish, I didn't learn enough. I said, if I ever got another chance to live overseas, that I was going to do it. So during that five years in 58 countries that I was traveling all the way in the back of my mind, I always had this kind of thing like, man, I want to live overseas again. I want to live overseas again. And I'd worked and I'd saved enough money to be able to do that. So the whole process of being able to get to a position to live overseas started from being rejected from my dream job once, failing myself, not being able to feel uncomfortable learning and trying to speak a new language. I, I went to the side of safety. And I didn't allow myself the growth experience that probably should have happened in 1995. But as a result, as I kept working, traveling around the world, saving money and got to a position where I knew that I didn't want to go to work a quote unquote normal nine to five after I'd been working and traveling throughout 58 countries and staying in these five-star hotels. And so I thought I was originally going to go to Italy, thought I was going to have a job that didn't work out. And so I decided to bet on myself again this time getting accepted at a university, a prestigious university in Paris. And when I was accepted, it was just a matter of moving. And I actually moved to Paris, Brian. I didn't know anybody. I moved to Paris. Um, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anyone, but I knew that this time I was going to bet on myself because I had failed myself back in 1995. And so that whole thought process, it stayed with me, not wanting to go back to work a normal nine to five, having saved enough money to be able to afford myself that opportunity to live for one year. And then also leveraging relationships that, uh, that I had that I'd forged over that five-year period was the thing that allowed me to stay in Europe and has really allowed me to stay ever since then. Well, now I'm married and all that kind of stuff. So that's a completely different story, but that's exactly what the the decision process, how it was formulated through failure events. And then, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that has, nobody's asked me that question in that way before, but, uh, but yeah, I guess that's kind of how I got here. I prefer to get my news intake from establishments abroad, right? So when I try to understand U.S. political or economic issues, I prefer to read things, publications out of Europe. I think it gives a better context to have a more holistic understanding of what's happening. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer -peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. How does that change your viewpoint on investing, U.S. culture? I mean, because you are obviously an ingrained American, but you've been removed for, for many years and you have a different perspective on things. Yeah. So, and I think this goes more to, is it the way that I'm interpreting things or just the way that my worldview has been formed? I just want to make sure that I'm answering which, or is it both? I think it's the, the latter is more interesting to me is... Yeah. So, so this is, you know, it's really interesting because it's now been 21 years, right? Almost half of my life, a little bit less than half of my life that I've actually been here. And so one of the things that I recognize is exactly that because I've lived in France, I've lived in 
Spain, and I've lived in Italy, right? Lived in those countries. And I've since traveled uh, and worked throughout some 86 different countries. And so to your point, I'm much less interested nowadays in what the headlines say, because um, I don't, and I don't, you know, it's just, it's just my experiences. Headlines are easily manipulated, right? I mean, it's just almost like writing a hook whenever you, you're writing something, you want to see, are people going to react to that? And so very much to your point, I prefer to be local, speak local, even if you don't understand the language, just to get the perspective of where people are coming from. And what that has allowed me to do, I think is challenge myself a lot more in terms of not necessarily is this the right way or the wrong way, but how how has someone come to this point of view, right? Is it based on just the culture that they grew up in? Is it based on the the historical context of the place that their parents or grandparents talked about? And so it's made me a much more curious person. It's made me a person who's also really, I'm not afraid to ask questions because I'm asking out of curiosity. I'm not, I usually I'm not trying to to put my way or my thought process on somebody else. It's just genuine curiosity because I've realized that when you start to, when I've started to ask people more questions and I can get a better understanding and many times it's challenging the ways that I grew up, right? The question you were asking me before, like, Billy, did you, have you always had this kind of abundant mindset? Well, no, Brian, because I didn't grow up that way. The context of my life was very different, but I've started to realize that when you can not only speak in an abundant way, but act in an abundant manner that it also is helpful. And then that also transcends just the the, the actions, but also the way that I take in my worldview. So it's maybe a, a kind of a long-winded answer, but I'm very much into challenging myself. The curious mentality that I have, and it helps me to keep a beginner's mind, is really the way that I go about formulating and challenging myself on a day-to-day basis. So a lot less about headlines and a lot more about interactions with people. And to link this to where I want to go next in the conversation, the answer was what I expected in a good way, that sense of empathy. And I'm fascinated by sales, right? Sales people, sales organizations. You talked about the corporate gig you had, one of the most, one of the largest tech sales companies in the world. And I always find that really good salespeople are naturally inquisitive. They are curious about everything, very empathetic, and they go hyper-local often to get that perspective and context. Can you talk to us about what it was like working within such a large sales organization and how you were able to achieve, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the nomenclature right, but you have president circle, top 1%, all of the big corporate jargon that goes around in sales. I'd love to just hear your commentary, what that journey was like. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty interesting journey, right? Because the very first sales role that I had, I remember a role where I was literally selling knives door to door, right? And this is back in the, this is back in college days, right? And, and, and so it was a very different type of, let's say transactional, but also leveraging relationships type of, of a sales environment. Very quickly, what I learned was but at that point I was really focused, right? It goes back to kind of how I grew up. Like I didn't have much. So the things that I had, it was about how do I make more money? How do I make more money? And when I realized you start learning techniques and all that kind of stuff as part of the sales process. But then as I started seeing that, and then I was started traveling around the world, I started understanding more about the importance of relationships. And then as I was in this, we'll fast forward to the, like the last 16 years where I spent my career. And I told you about the, the business that I managed was a hundred million dollar business at the time of 70 million euros, but currency fluctuation, all that kind of stuff. But, but the reality is, is sales 
is, in my opinion, right, it's when when executed properly is one of the most, if not the most noble profession that exists, because the reason that a sales organization exists is because you're there to help someone solve a problem. And if you can understand what the problem is, like, and so a lot of times when we hear problem, we think that it's something that's going completely wrong. But a problem can mean that you're 1% off of efficiency, which could be costing your company hundreds of millions, if not billions of euros and dollars, right? And so it's not about trying to solve something that's terrible. It's about how do you make something even better? And so through just interactions with clients, right? And at the end of the day, there's a service that you want to be able to position. What I like to say about the sales process, the thing that I've learned is that when you can guide a client and are inquisitive about what it is their challenge is, and you can help them to make an informed decision, that's when you become a valuable individual, whether you're a salesperson or a sales leader, you become valuable to the client that you're helping because you're helping them become informed. And that doesn't mean that they're always going to go with your solution. But if you're genuinely working to help them and you are helping them and you're allowing them to make an informed decision, if you've done things properly, they should see that your solution is the best. But if you haven't, well, then at least you've helped them along the way. Right. And so I got it wrong more than I got it right. And it's just the nature of sales because typically people will talk about the largest deals. And I mean, one of the, probably the, the largest single opportunity about helping guide a client was when I was actually working in a language and a culture that is not my own. And we helped a client solve an eight digit um, problem that they were having, i.e. that the value of the contract that we signed with them was an eight digit contract in the span of about five years. And so the, re the only reason I share that story is it, it wasn't my language, it wasn't my culture natively, but the things that I was able to learn and the teams that I was able to lead across very, very complex, right? Because we're talking about multi-billion euro companies, being able to guide multiple stakeholders, C-level and, and internal teams to be able to solve that solution, which was a very large solution and other times on smaller levels, but being able to guide them through the process and helping them to be uh, informed, that happened less frequently than we lost. So it's always about keeping that in, in context, guiding, helping, supporting to make informed decisions, but it, you know, less than 40% of the time it works out in your favor. So you also have to learn what worked, what didn't work to ultimately add value to, uh, to your clients. Hopefully that wasn't too convoluted, Brian, but it was, it's more about what is the process, how you help clients to make informed decisions. You don't try to get them to buy your stuff, right? When you try to do that, that's not the right type of sales process. It's about how can you help a client or a potential client make an informed decision? And then based on that, it, you put yourself in the highest probability of starting the relationship in the right way. Also, maybe just one last thing. Some of the things that we, when we won, like I told you this, this eight figure thing that we won, what I forgot to say is when two years before, when we had a major escalation and problem as a salesperson, I was with the client helping them out of the problem that they were having because this, the things weren't working. And when you're building relationships, you're there, you're helping them once again, make informed decisions. Sometimes later on down the line, years later, it can also be this situation where you're guiding them, you're helping them make an informed decision in, this, in the, the software or the solution that they select is yours as well. So hopefully that, uh, hopefully that helps a bit. And what in your experience differentiated the top 1% from the 99%? Was it, was it just clear who the best salespeople were? Or was it a, a situation where there were just 
shades of gray that you iterated on the skill set and you eventually got bigger? Or was the chasm huge between the top producers and everybody else? Yeah, so there's there's a mixture, right? Because the the larger the organization, many times these things happen over spans of years. It's not just you know, it's not just a a couple of weeks. So sometimes it's a matter of years. But one of the things that I've always noticed is as I also matured as a sales leader, it's those that are able to make the biggest impact are usually the ones that ask the questions that are the most basic, direct, and impactful. Because especially with like the higher that I found that I was getting to the C-suite. So when you sit down with the CEO of a, you know, 4 billion euro turnover company or, you know, revenue company, they don't have time for a lot of the minutia. So it's how do you, how do you get to a point of asking the questions that make the most impact in the simplest, most direct way, and then be able to make a decision, build your argument in the most concise amount of time, right? Because that's the, that, that's the game. The higher you go in the organization, it's, you have less time, you have to make greater impact. And, and you have to be able to do that in a way that makes makes sense, right? And so that is the one thing that I would say when you, the, the, the most impactful sales leaders, sales professionals are the ones that have the ability to ask the right questions of the right individuals, and then also mobilize resources. Like that is absolutely key is being able to mobilize resources. When I say resources, I mean financial resources. I mean human capital within an organization. And a lot of that actually, Brian, I see today like that big corporate experience it really helps. Sometimes it gets in the way, even when you're not in a big corporate anymore, but just that whole thought process and being able to be clear, be direct and, and be able to guide someone to an informed decision. You, you, you see that is something that, you know, the, the top producers without a doubt have those things in common. And, and time, as you referenced to something that these large C-suite folks don't have. And when you alluded to it earlier, when the driving factors behind you making this choice of leaving corporate world and becoming an entrepreneur was time and, and what you would term, I think, as, as freedom of time. Yeah, so it, it was. And, you know, Brian, one of the things that happened is because I was in a situation where I was a happy corporate employee, right? Like I said, it was on my LinkedIn profile and everyone could see it. It, it was a matter of I was in such a rhythm because I was making what I considered to be a lot of money for what I was doing. I mean, if you, there's a website that's called RepView and RepView, they rank sales organizations in the sales organization that I worked for. The top producing sales executives were, were making, the last summary was $1.2 million, right? So just to give you an idea of the, the sale, the type of problems that you're solving when you're the top tier of the type of sales organization that I was working for. And, and when you start to see that, you also recognize that it's not just about the money because that all comes at a cost. Right. You don't just, you're not typically, maybe you're someone's really, really fortunate, but when you are in that type of a role, in that type of an organization, uh, there are certain stresses that come along with that. And for probably because I'd started about a decade before I started investing for my, myself and investing in, in hard assets and things like that, as you know. But for the last three and a half, four years that I was going into the company, I was going in, Brian, because I wanted to. Financially, I didn't need to because the things that I was doing outside of the office were, were getting my passive income where it needed to be, right? Meaning that we weren't super rich, but we didn't, I didn't need to go. So the fact that I was going in every single day and was happy about it, I was making a really great salary, had amazing benefits, the great car and all this other kind of stuff. And I was getting recognition, right? Which was really important because if you're doing something well, you're getting recognized, you're highly compensated, and you're like, wow, you know, why don't I keep doing this? And the challenge that happened for me, Brian, was 
Very similarly, when I got into real estate, because I missed a, a major event for my son's third birthday, towards the latter part of last year, my dad got really ill and he had some major, major health issues. And I remember flying back to the US in September and then I flew back again in October twice. And then eventually we, they operated on him. He's doing much better now, but he had an issue with a major issue with his heart. And I remember being in the, in the ICU with him and just holding his hand and I was there. And while I was thinking about the things that I was doing, the freedom that I had to be able to travel back and forth to the US, I wasn't thinking about what the ticket cost or any of that kind of stuff. I just wanted to be with my dad in this time. But while I was in the ICU with them, I was literally thinking about my life and like, you know what? I really like what I'm doing, but I'm not passionate about selling software. I'm just, I'm just not. And so it was not the things that were the financial rewards or the recognition, but it was how do I take control truly of my time knowing that it's something that's finite? Cause I'm looking at this situation right now while I'm in the ICU with my dad. And that was the thing that really helped me to realize okay, this is not just about money. Like, And I come from a place where I didn't grow up with money, so I know it's really important to have it and have your basis covered. But then it became a matter of how do I invest my time with the people that I love the most in ways that make the most sense for me and for them? And aside from being able to spend a lot of, to be able to invest a lot more time with my family, it's also what is the way that I can continue to go out and, and make an impact professionally? Because I didn't want to just sit at home all day, every day, because I think my wife and kids wouldn't like that much either, because I got a lot of energy. So that was the thing that really motivated me to say, hey, look, this is about a lot more than money. This is about how I'm investing my time with the people that I love and, and being able to do that in a way that makes the most sense for me and, and for them. And also being able to build a business around that as well. Yeah, you're a fascinating character on many levels, but the, the two themes that strike me, one, living abroad, that choice, two, leaving corporate life, these are trends that we're seeing play out a lot right now over the last two, three years, exacerbated by COVID, in my experience and opinion, a lot of people are reevaluating whether or not they want to be in the US and this whole concept of quiet quitting that employees now have leverage over employers, which with their session that may shift. But do you feel like you're part of these trends? Do you do you have self-recognition that you may be on the vanguard of some of these larger themes we're seeing play out? You know what, Brian, as you say that, man, I don't really relate to that. So I I feel like my situation is was unique because I had the thing that happened with my dad, maybe I'd still be in my job. Right. Because I was doing it. I, I mean, I was going out. I was I was enjoying it. I was having the recognition. But what it was, was it was more than COVID because like during COVID, I decided, hey, look, I want to start a podcast. I want to do this. I want to do that. And so my brain was working on new things and then the actions followed them. But the thing about leaving the role was not about and, and so there's one thing it's leaving the role and also not going back into corporate like I have no desire to do that like at all. And so it was really much more than the, you know, what's happening with people in quiet quitting and focusing on their other roles and doing things. Cause I was doing that for a decade and I would have probably continued to do that. But when I got that clarity, like super fast, when I literally am looking up and I'm like, these machines are keeping my dad alive. And this is just a reminder that, Hey, listen, Billy, you're in a very fortunate situation here. What are you doing to make the most of it? And I started reflecting and I started thinking about things. And that's when it really became clear for me, like, hey, listen, I've enjoyed corporate life. 
it's been really good to me. I've been really good to it. And now it's time to do something else. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel like that was, that was my thing. The quiet quitting, like I said, I've been doing it for quite a while. The reflection I'd had, some of that was happening, but no, this was more, it was, for me, it was much more personal, personal than that. And so what's the journey been like? Um, it's been, I mean, it's been, it's been fantastic, right? So it hasn't been, well, yeah, it's been fantastic, but it's also been, there've been moments when it's been really, really lonely, right? Because part of this transition is like, and I remember writing about this the other day too, like I'm, I'm, I'm writing all this stuff on LinkedIn after, after so many, so, so many years, I'm like, this happened and this happened. But, you know, I, I think about kind of where I was and you're in this recognition and you're in this, you're in the spotlight and you're a rising star in your company and you're in the top 1% of a company that has 110,000 employees and, you know, and you're in the Mecca of the Mecca and, and it goes from one day to the next and the phone stops ringing. The email stop coming in. No one's calling you anymore. And it's like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> the, the last 16 years of my life, like my phone was ringing off the hook every day. Everybody needed my input. I was the person who got this deal across the line. I was the one who was reaching out to the CEO of this other company or the CFO. And, and so there was a moment, right? And there are still moments where I'm like, my phone's not ringing. No one's sending me emails. That means I'm not important. And that's just not true right? It's just not true. It's just what I was telling myself. So yes, it's been fantastic. At the same time, there have been moments where it's like, wow, man, this is a, this is kind of a lonely transition. This is, no one's calling me anymore. Nobody needs me anymore. I'm not as important as I thought I was. And that's just part of the transition, right? It's just a matter of also being able to take the step back and saying, okay, you're just now in a different type of leadership. You're now in a different type of, of impact, Billy. You're, you're, you're doing things in a different way. And you are also now able to invest your time the way you want, because all of the things that made it really great, the corporate life, it also, it, you know, it came at a price. And so now that I'm the person who is responsible for, if I stay in the office until nine o'clock at night or three in the morning or three in the afternoon, I don't point my finger at anybody else. Like it's on me now. Right. And, and building those relationships, building network, um, helping clients to, to solve and resolve their issues. Uh, a lot of that is now on on me, directly on me. And so the transition has been fantastic. Like, I'm really glad that I did it when I did it for me. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, there've been moments where it's, where it's challenging. There's been moments where you're like, man, what am I actually doing here? <laughs> this is like, wow, this is a lot. Um, and you, yeah, I mean, it's, it, but overall, love it. Absolutely love it. Reflecting on our conversation in advance, I was reading through your bio and your LinkedIn and, and the story, obviously. And I'm curious how thoughtful you are about not falling into the same trap in the corporate gig that you do being an entrepreneur. Because when I read your story, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 plus years and it can oftentimes feel like I left corporate law and I just created another monster by a different name. And now that we have a pretty decent sized company, my time is limited to travel. It starts stacking up on you. And I, you know, I've got my own thoughts there, but I want to hear yours. So it's, it's one of those things that scares me because I am so passionate about the, so, and I, and I want to break this out. Like, so I'm so passionate about the business side of what I'm doing, like building this, this investor family that it doesn't feel like work, Brian. So I could literally do it 24 hours a day, right? At the same time, one of the biggest gifts that I decided to take 
was the gift of being able to be responsible for my own time. And so one of the things that I do to check in is I, I really check in with my wife, like, Hey, how am I, how am I doing? Where am I? Am I, you know, and she's a very good barometer for me in terms, cause she'll be very honest. Like, Hey, look, you're, we're going back to where you were with the corporate gig. Right. And so I'm, it's very, I'm very conscious of it right now. I'm also conscious of the fact that we're getting started. I'm very clear on where we want to go. Like I, I want our, our company to serve 200 clients. It's a very particular client. And I want to be able to invest my time and energy from the professional standpoint with those clients, deepening those relationships. Maybe it's like this, what's the word for it? It's just like this, like Panacea. I don't know how I forget my words in English sometimes, <laughs> which is some of the things that happens when you speak five languages at this point. But it's like this, like this ideal kind of life and ideal kind of uh, business. But that's what we're working towards. I haven't been doing this a decade yet, but I've have had to already make check-ins with myself, with my wife. Like, hey, how are things going? Like, we just did this. We just had a, a pretty significant raise not too long ago, and I was working because we're also in the point of, hey, are the, how's this process working? Is it high touch enough? Do is there something that we can automate? Can we not? Do we want to do this? And so, because I want the experience to be the right experience for those 200 clients that we are going to serve, I'm very conscious of that, and I am conscious of not going back into the world that I was living. In when I was in the corporate life, because I don't want to be on my phone when my kids are with me or I'm at some sporting event with them. No one is making me look at that phone or make this call anymore. Now it's it's me and the clients that I'm serving. And so I think I even heard you talk about this one time. It's as you start to set up your your business, it's a matter of you know, where are your boundaries and are you setting them up appropriately just for yourself, for your family and for your clients, for your team. And so those types of lessons and knowing where I am now, it's one of those things that, you know, just doing everything that I can to stay within the boundaries and not go back to what I lived for the last, you know, 16 years or so. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Having some bright lines can be really helpful, I think, because, you know, someone like you with the energy, the drive, like there is no end, right? So you can just keep going and you t- it will take up the time that you give it. So you need to be thoughtful about where you draw those those lines on the map. So I'm curious, more granular on the business. Are you buying real assets in in Europe or or abroad? And are the investor bases are they scattered across the globe? Are they also euro centric? Yeah, so very much uh, U.S. centric at this point. So where and where we're focusing today, all of the assets are. 100% in the US. It has been that way for the decade, even when I was uh, purchasing assets before. And specifically, Brian, where where we're playing today, the, the hard assets that we're purchasing are very much in the energy space where we are. It, one of the things, so I had a, a major challenge that I was working to solve for myself. And I was trying to figure out like, how can I actually invest even more into the hard assets into the the things that I was investing in, right? The especially the things I was investing in passively, which was you know I'd have a couple of developments in the hotel space, and uh, also invested in larger multifamily properties and things like that, and invested in some uh, ATMs and, and and other stuff. I own a mobile home park, but I was trying to figure out how do I get more access to capital to be able to do that. And aside from the syndication, but I was in this very unique situation where I was enjoying all the passive stuff that I was in, but I was also paying relatively high income tax. 
because well, I just was very fortunate in the, doing the job that I was doing. And so when we started investing more time and energy, no pun intended, in the, in the energy sector, it was one of the things that I was able to realize that in my situation, um, not only was I able to invest in technology that was helping to produce more energy, specifically oil and gas, it was also creating consistent returns for me. And it was helping me to keep more of my income tax. And so when I was able to keep more of my income tax, it helped me to also invest in more of the other passive stuff, which made a lot more sense as well, because it just by definition, at least for me in my context, that that tax efficiency on, on passive stuff made made more sense. So and because that the energy space solved a very specific problem for me, that's where I've decided to have our company really focus on today. So we're we're focusing on that space in energy, um, specifically in, in oil and gas production through carbon capture technology. So like I said, it helps me and it helped a lot of the people that I was surrounded by, high paid IT software sales executives who were, you know, they, they wanted to be able to do things and stay in their job, but also be able to keep more of their income tax while producing consistent returns. And so that's where, from a business perspective, where I focused more of our, our time and energy today. So I'll, I want to get your thoughts on, on energy. It, it's triggered a question that I thought about over the weekend. You know, living in Spain, spending time in Europe, especially over the last 20 years, Energy has become a geopolitical risk. Energy in Europe is probably one of the largest issues in the news today. What is the sentiment boots on the ground right now in Europe, financially, economically, security-wise? What does it feel like to you? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of different things. So what it feels like to me is what it feels very differently probably to the people specifically, and I'm going to even drill down even further and say where I live in Spain, right? Because... I have friends that live in Paris and they're living a very different kind of thing. And I have friends that live in Germany and they're literally on the line of kind of where a lot of this thing is impacted and a lot of the different labor costs that are going, sorry, the, the energy cost, as well as the increase in labor that are, that are directly affecting things like automobile creation, stuff like that. Right. So I'm going to even bring it down here. So if where I am today, from where I sit, I see and I sense and I hear the conversations of there's a, is a growing concern here where I live in Spain, about what will happen in terms of the cost of energy and being able to specifically right now, because we're entering into the uh, into the early fall of being able to what's going to cost the people to heat homes, right? Because there is a big concern about the, the prices of what it's going to cost. And people don't know if we're going to have to go back to, to coal or wood or things that probably three years ago, no one have even thought about. But geopolitically, because of the things that are happening very close to our door here and, you know, uh, the, the things that are happening in, in Russia and the Ukraine specifically, it is driving more sentiment and the sentiment is of concern. And it usually is about, you know, what is it going to cost me to do something as basic as keep my home warm? That's not even getting into the transportation costs and, and some of the scarcity that can happen there. But really the things that people are talking about or concerned about where I am here in Spain today is about what are we going to do to keep you know, how much is it going to cost me to keep my place warm this summer or this winter? Excuse me. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Interesting times. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get into everything I wanted to touch on, but we're bumping up against time. There's a question that I've started asking people on the show and I don't prompt them. You have a lot going on, obviously, between launching this new venture, raising capital, sourcing opportunities, family, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? The, the biggest thing that, yes. So the answer to that question is yes. 
Uh, do I do it 100% of the time? Still not yes, but I'm much better about it today. I'm much more frequent. And what I found that works for me is just the practice of going through the routine, the savers routine. So how Elrod, if you're familiar with it. So the whole thing of of having the, the, the silence first thing in the morning and you're able to also focus on your, your visualization, you get your exercise, your reading, your scribing, and also being able to see, you know, really what what are the what are the big picture goals that you're you're focusing on? Those things have helped me. And one of the things, specifically the last step, which is the scribing, so writing, it's something that I've become I'm, I'm a terrible writer. Right. And it's something that I've always told myself that I wasn't good at. But now being able to write and be honest with myself and be able to get things out of my head and my heart and onto a piece of paper, right? Because I prefer to write in pen and paper. It's helping me to become even more curious about things. It goes back to that kind of like beginner's mind and also being able to help me feel more aware of what's happening in my in my surroundings and also within my being. And when I'm doing that consistently, my days feel more like regular, like there are less unexpected things that are happening. And so I believe that that's a part of being able to start out my day in the right way and also not having to overthink it. There's no decisions that are being made. I'm just going through uh, what is my savers process. And and if I need to take 15 minutes to do it, I can do it in 15 minutes. If I want to take an hour, I can take an hour. And now if I want to take two hours, I could I can do that. I haven't worked up to the two hour thing yet, but I'm sure I'll get there. <laughs> is it interesting? Yeah, I mean, everyone's response is different, but the themes are all very similar characteristic wise what people do. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the show. This is great. It was a long time coming and, and overdue. And we'll have to do a follow-up because we didn't cover everything that I wanted to, that I'd laid out. And if people are, like you said, I appreciate your encouragement of people to leave a, a comment or review, but if you enjoyed the episode, please do that. And then if, if people are interested in engaging with you on the content side, you put out some really great, excellent content. We're learning more about the investments that you're making. What's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. So, and Brian, I appreciate that, man. And uh, yeah, whenever I'd, I'd love to come back and chat with you, but we have to make sure that we're, we're chatting more frequently anyway. So, but that's a whole different thing. So, but yeah, I mean, for the person who is, um, who is an accredited investor and who's really looking to be able to learn more about how you can create consistent returns, also keeping more in income tax, we, we have a, a special guide that we've actually, it's really easy to read guide. They can go to firstgencp.com forward slash capital club. And they can go and pick that up there. Once again, firstgencp.com forward slash capital club. Also for someone, the, the website is firstgencp. I mentioned you were a guest on, on the Going Long podcast with Billy Keels, episode 75. You absolutely crushed it. And then also to, you know, I, I like being able to connect on, on LinkedIn and uh, being able to, to share a lot more on there. And one of the things that's coming out of my writings in the morning is being able to share more about uh, things that are happening. So if anyone ever wants to connect there uh, on LinkedIn, just uh, one thing that will help also too, and Brian, I'm sure you see this a lot, is if you just uh, say hello and let me know that you've already heard Brian and I speaking here on the Capital Club, that would be uh, very, very helpful. So, and aside from that, Brian, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to be here to share a bit more of my story with you, reconnect, and also, you know, anything I can do to help you, man, just... Uh, just let me know. And thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. And for those who are just hearing Billy for the first time, like I said, one of the most genuine, authentic, energetic, just good vibe dudes out there. So I highly recommend you connect with him and learn more about what he's doing. And Billy, thanks again for joining us today. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.